This is the best album ever, the show that will never feature Tub Thumper, which, by the way, is the eighth studio album from Chumbawamba. Yeah, that was the eighth one. They, they continued to make more. Anyway, I make that promise to you right now. Because seven wasn't enough, really. Seven wasn't enough. We needed Tub Thumper. Anyway, it's never going to happen. Sorry, guys. Moving on. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Helms, and today we're going to dive deep into another very influential album. Uh, also, I think our earliest album to date, so arguably making it the most influential. And yes, we will get into that and everything else about the album, the lyrics, the recording process, the artist as a whole, kind of big picture stuff, and why my guest thinks this album belongs up there at the very tippy top as the best album ever. Uh, so joining me today is my longtime friend and host of the Cinesoul podcast, uh, which you can also find on the Overthink Podcast Network. Woo-hoo. Jorge Castellanos, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Ben? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I've just dove deep dive i've dived deep dove in deep into this album the past week or so man i'm, I'm excited to talk about it well what album are we talking about oh we, i'm gonna let you introduce it but let's let's first before we introduce it let's frame the conversation a bit all right let's start at the beginning a few weeks ago when i presented this to you i asked you to come on the show and i asked you what was what do you think the best album ever is you're kind of hesitant you didn't really want to pin it down what were some of your hesitations okay so this has nothing to do with your show per se but it's the whole issue of best. I I have this issue of best across all arts. It's tough for me to get behind the film award season because they're always trying to say one piece of art is better than another piece of art and deserves critical acclaim or an award or whatever. And, you know, I think art is so personal that uh, it's hard to put that sort of moniker. Now, what I prefer to think of, so so backtracking here to yeah, yeah. best album ever, uh, I'm not sure I could ever choose a best album across the spectrum of all music that has ever been created by humankind and has been recorded in album form. I just don't feel like that's even possible, much less a worthy task. But I can certainly pick out my favorites Mm-hmm. of things, sure, my sure. favorite movies, my favorite books, my favorite TV shows, and my favorite music. Right. And I could pick out my favorite music and albums, although any one particular day, my favorite album might be A, B, or C because of what's going on in that day with me. I can certainly say that it would be among a, a smaller group than just all the music that I love, right? Right, right, right. right. And, and that's why I'm comfortable. Tub Thumper doesn't quite make that upper echelon. No, just, you know, it. now that seventh album. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so so as long as you and I have that understanding, and yeah. our listeners too, I hope. Good disclaimer. That, that I'm not saying this album we're going to look at today is the best album ever. But I am saying that it's one of my favorites and could easily be the one that I have to live with on a deserted island, let's say. Yeah, yeah. You know, as as we as I thought about, geez, what album would I choose? Uh, you know, I've I've got a pretty lengthy personal record collection since I've been buying albums since before there were even cassettes, right? Mm-hmm. So I've done a lot of digitizing of those vinyl albums. And so I went to my iTunes list, and I usually, when I digitize an album, I sort of star the songs, right? And I looked up, hey, which is the album that's got the most songs starred the highest I could possibly give it? Oh, interesting. And that's why this album showed up. And it didn't surprise me, because I'm like, well, of course, I love this album. 
And that's, I mean, that, that speaks to who you are and how you view art. And I think how your brain works too, your, your personal website, jcspace.com, uh, which is, by the way, is a great looking website. Oh, thanks. <laughs> a uh, really you, great designer it's designed just a it. Beautiful, for beautiful design and layout. I think, uh, <laughs> the content, who knows, right. But it just looks beautiful. Um, it, you have, uh, music and, or sorry, you have, um, TV and movies, big sections of to cinema and TV. And, you don't rank them necessarily one to 10, but you rank them as should someone see them? Should they put them you know, on their list to see in their queue or, or should they maybe stay away from? And you're very regimented as far as suggest, as far as that, that grading system. Yeah. So that definitely makes sense. It adds up when you're like, Oh, that's how you landed on it. That makes sense. So, yeah. Cause you know, I, I don't mean to say that I don't have opinions about art. Sure. I, I totally do. And I totally can say I connect with this more than I do with this other thing. Yeah. And here's why I connect with it. And it's up to everyone else to decide whether they connect with either of these things the way that I do or don't, but to determine whether they think it's good or best or indifferent or whatever. But it helps me in thinking about why do I really like this to, to give it some sort of rating. And this album's rated about as high as I could rate it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that, let's get into it. What's, Who's the artist, the album, and can you tell me kind of how you came to know this artist and album and, and your personal experience in discovering it? Absolutely. So the album is Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town, which uh, was his fourth studio album, and it was released in June of 1978. So on June 2nd, officially of 1978. There's a darkness on the edge of town. And listen, when I when it was released, I was 21 mm-hmm. and six days away from being 22. Okay. So that's where I am in my life. And at the beginning of that summer, when it was released, the summer of 78, I had just spent my third year in college uh, at San Diego State University, but it was my first year at San Diego State because I transferred from another school, Cal State Fullerton, woo Titans. And I had gone to that school for a couple of years, my freshman and sophomore years, because it was convenient. It was in the same town that I grew up in or that I went to junior high and high school in, put it that way, is actually across the street. Cal State Fullerton is across the street from my old high school. And my mom taught class there. My uncle worked in the athletic department there. I didn't really know when I graduated high school what I wanted to do. And so I'm like, I could either go to junior college or I could just start at Cal State Fullerton and take a bunch of, you know, basic foundational courses that I'll need to get a degree in anything that I choose and then see what I gravitate to. And to make a long story shorter, uh, by the end of my sophomore year, uh, I had decided, along with another great friend of mine, my oldest friend, Craig, uh, that we would both transfer from the schools that we were going to and go to San Diego State to start a film school. Oh, nice. And so that first year at San Diego State was kind of my out-of-the-nest year, if you will, and all the things that come with that right. as, a, as a young adult, right? Right. Um, so... I was learning about making new friends and being away from the comfort zone of home and immediate family and experiencing a bunch of new things like you do when you go to college. 
And one of those things that I was experiencing, because I lived in the dorm that first year, Craig and I shared a room at the, mm-hmm. at the dorm, was everyone else's musical tastes that totally. was living in the dorm with me. Yes. Uh, musical tastes that were varied and, in many cases, about music that I had never even heard of. Right. Much less uh, knew about or, or liked or didn't like, right? I just had not been exposed. So it was a year of a lot of discovery. Now, I had been exposed to Springsteen uh, a little bit in his first two albums that got the barest minimum radio play. When I was living in in Orange County, where I, again, I grew up, that's where Cal State Fullerton is, you know, you could listen to all the L.A. radio stations. And back then, we're talking about uh, the mid-70s, yeah. uh, album-oriented rock, AOR, was the stations that I wanted to listen to. And one of the DJs that I used to um, be passionate about was a guy named Jim Ladd at radio station KMET in, um, I think it was in Hollywood, actually. Okay. And Jim Ladd was, he's very famed. You can Google him and look him up. He was one of those guys that, you know, if you look up the definition of independent DJ, that's Jim Ladd. This was before Clear Channel, you know, before anybody <laughs> dictated to a DJ what right, they could or couldn't right. play. The DJ was the boss, right? And the DJ was hired because of their musical tastes, right? Right. right? right. So KMT went out and went, "Who do we want to uh, have their finger on the pulse of the kind of music that we think LA wants to listen to?" Jim Ladd, boom, come on, and Jim, play what you want, right? Uh, so I would hear all kinds of stuff. Uh, this was way before KROQ and all that madness that happened there. But I remember many, many times in high school, it being late at night, uh, me having headphones on, listening to the radio, KMET, Jim Ladd play obscure stuff in the middle of the night. Uh, and so I'm sure that Springsteen's first few albums didn't really get a lot of radio airplay, that I'm sure I heard some stuff on uh, Jim Ladd's show. So I, w- I was exposed to some Springsteen before before Born to Run, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, his first two albums. I had, I'd heard a little bit of, but I'd never heard the whole album. And Born to Run comes out, and obviously Born to Run has a couple of hits on it, a couple of singles that were popular and got some radio airplay. But it came out in, in what, 75, I think. And that was the year I graduated from high school, and uh, maybe I hadn't really been exposed that much to it. Uh, so I don't really have a memory of Born to Run other than probably going, oh, that song Born to Run on the radio, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Until maybe a year or so, in 76 or so, Craig had heard it because where he was going to college, one of his friends had exposed him to that album and to Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And in my continuing friendship with him, even though I was at one school and he was at another, we were far away, we'd stayed in touch. I'm sure I got exposed to Springsteen that way, uh, more heavily through him. And then when we moved in together to go to San Diego State, he had the Born to Run album, and so I heard it completely then, and it was like, wow, this guy's amazing. So by the time that Darkness came out, you know, at the end of my junior year, put it that way, in college, uh, I was very primed for Springsteen. Yeah. And really, really eager to hear what he was doing with this album, especially... Because it had been three years since Born to Run came out. He he was in this legal turmoil b- 
because he was suing his former manager, Mike Apple, Appel, sorry. Mike Appel, yeah. And because of that lawsuit, he couldn't uh, go into the studio. He couldn't record anything. All he could do was write and play live. And that's kind yeah. of where those tours started. After the Born to Run tour, he'd, he'd continue to sort of tour uh, just to have, have that creative outlet. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. in a, in addition to knowing Born to Run and anticipating darkness, I'd hear about, because, you know, I'm an avid Rolling Stone reader at that point, and I'm at college, so, you know, you, you get exposed to all the stuff that happens in pop culture because you're a college student. Um, I was aware that he was touring, and the word out was that his live show was amazing. Nice. So the album Darkness comes out in June of 1978, and then in July of that same year, a month after uh, the album comes out, he plays a live show at San Diego Sports Arena. Wow. And that's my first Springsteen live show. Nice. Uh, And I get exposed to what the Springsteen live experience is, which for me in, in my generation at that point in time, in that point in creative music, I can only... Uh, equate it to what Hamilton has been. Wow. As a live experience, right? It is unprecedented. Right. It, nobody does a show like that anymore. Now, James Brown used to do these long shows, and he'd especially do a lot of shtick that Springsteen would do in his own show of the performer who collapses and has to be propped up by the other musicians just to do the encore. And he comes back to life. He's revived and he does that other encore number. And, you know, yeah, Springsteen yeah. did that plenty. And, and big props to James Brown on that. But nobody was playing three, three and a half hour, four hour long concerts yep. with an intermission. I yep. mean, come on. That's just the, the audience. And I was one of them. We would stand there with our mouths wide open, not believing that he was playing more. Jeez. Like every time, even the encores were multiple, multiple. There was like another set was the whole encore. Yeah. The the thing that I experienced right from the get-go in his tours was that not only was he able and willing to play virtually any song that he had recorded and put out on his albums, but also songs that he had not recorded but had worked out with the band Mm -hmm. so that they had a complete version of the song and maybe they had recorded it, but not released it. Right. I mean, you got to realize, let's talk specifically about the darkness album. Yeah. Born to run comes out. It gets critical and popular acclaim, some popular acclaim. Let's not say it's insanely the, you know, it's not a thriller, but it was definitely his breakout. But but yeah, it's his breakout album. Yeah. And he went from struggling artist mm-hmm. uh, to before, you know, before Born to Run got released to now people really like him and expect things of him totally. with a whole different kind of pressure, right? And a whole different kind of mindset and a whole, I mean, he talks about it in, in his documentaries and I think he even talked about it in his autobiography that to go from that artist who's really just focused on creation and wanting to achieve something without the sort of pressure of an actual audience dictating what he might want to be thinking while he's doing that to now he's popular and he's got something to sort of be measured against 
right? And that changes the equation for an artist, for a creative person. Totally. Expectations are a big deal. So he went through that, and then the lawsuit, and then he he can't put out another album. He's had a, a successful third effort that is about to generate a probably really popular fourth effort, except, no, you got to wait three years until these legal problems are resolved and you can get back in the studio. In between that time, and even while he's in the studio with Darkness, but in between that time especially, he writes 70 songs, seven zero. 70 songs Jeez. during the darkness recording sessions they rehearse and record 50 plus wow. of those 70 songs 10 of them and maybe choose album. 10 that's crazy right? yeah now a bunch of them end up being used later on the river album the double album that right, came after right. darkness and you can you can feel the thread of that from one album to the other you can tell the connection mm-hmm. but I, I think it was even Van Zant who, in uh, the Promise documentary that was about the making of uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Who, real quick, he's the he's the guy that you always see on stage with the bandana over his eyebrows. Steve Van Zant, um, <laughs> formerly known as Miami, Miami Steve Van Zant, sure. Little Steven, and he was also uh, he's also an actor and he was in The Sopranos. So uh, you know he's done a lot of different things. And is a really a great producer, mm-hmm. and an, and he's very wise about music, and and I mean he's a great guitarist, and he's a good singer, and you know he's a writer and producer on his own too. But but anyway, Steve Van Zant, who was part of the band as the album was produced, and then uh, joined them on the road as the you know became part of the E Street Band on the tours. And was in and out of that band. Well, mostly in for most of the E Street's career. There was a time where he stepped out. And then I think it was, what, Nils Lofgren came in. And then Steve came back and Nils didn't leave. So they just added another guitarist. But uh, Steve Van Zant basically said that they'd write songs, or Springsteen would write songs out of these 70 and the 50 plus that they recorded. That he was like, oh yeah, those are that those are two singles right there. We're definitely going to release those. And Bruce would say, nope, not going to do it, because he didn't feel like they were of a piece with what he was trying to make the whole album sound like, right? And and Steve Van Zant basically says, that took a lot of, not only guts, but a lot of discipline. You know, he says, it it's hard to write a good song. It's hard to write a successful song. And to write some yeah. that you know are going to be hits and to not release them. That takes some discipline, man, and some focus on your vision, which is part of why this is my favorite Springsteen record, even though it might not be as, you know, it's not as pop as Born to Run. uh, It's not as catchy as some other tunes that he's written. But I think as an album, as a complete work of art, all the songs working integrally together to say something it's not a collection of songs. It's an album. And that's why yeah. I like it so much. Plus, you know, as I think Bruce says about uh, pop music, pop, pop promised the ever living now. That's what pop is. It just promises the now. We're doing this now. Here's, yeah. here's what now is. It's a snapshot of now. And, and for me, with mm-hmm. Darkness, what I like so much about it is I hear the reflections on the past. And the philosophy and the rumination about 
what does that mean for my future? So that all of that is weighed within the songwriting rather than just, hey, what's a pop song now or a love song now, that kind of thing. There's no love songs on Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's not about boy meets girl. It's about boy's been in a relationship with girl and sees the anguish in in her eyes and wonders what's that going to mean for their future. That's right. really right. interesting to me, right? Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting how, I mean, this, this is a couple years after the Vietnam War ended, and so you have this these ideas of the jaded country, especially the youth movement, this yeah. disillusionment, and you also have this coming off of Born to Run, like you were talking about, how he, he I believe it's in The Promise, where the, the documentary, where he talks about this being an album, the, those, the collection of songs, however many it was, he wanted them, after he wrote 70 or whatever it was, he wanted the, in the choosing process of this album, it to be a way to reconnect with the core of who he was, a reflection of his community and his family and his values, and not the fame and success of Born to Run and who the image of everyone said that he was and who of Mike Appel wanted him to be in the way, you know, the old Bruce would have right. been writing songs. He wanted to kind of strip that all away, get rid of the fame and success and just get down to who he was as a person that, you know, which is kind of that, that classic image of Bruce Springsteen that I have, which is the blue collar factory worker carrying his lunch pail to work, you know, on the sitting on the girder for lunch kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and that's kind of what he was saying he wanted to do in a less caricature type of way. He wanted to be more real and genuine than I'm portraying it as, or my images. Uh, but it's, it's cool to see that that was a genuine, specific, intentional choice. It wasn't like, yeah, these are the 10 best songs. I hope I make some money. Not at all. Which would be tough not to do because that's that's his work. That's his profession. So that would be understandable to do. Yeah, and, and in his songwriting and in that whole aspect, I think, he's in that long line of artists that, you know, included Woody Guthrie to Bob Dylan and, and then to Springsteen. I mean, they tell stories in their songs, right? And And those stories about real people living things that are real and hard felt to them and not so much, you know, concerned about is this story that I'm telling going to be popular, right? Is it going to yep. be on the radio? Yep, yep. Not that those guys, you know, didn't think about the business side of their work, you know, that's it's sure, art sure. and business just like films are, but, but yeah. And I, and I think you're right about the touchstone around what what was going on in history uh, at this time. I mean, yeah. just for kicks, I looked up on IMDb's Top 1000, the films that were released between January 1st and December 31st of 1978 uh, that made the Top 1000. And the ones that stand out for me and that sort of make sense are The Deer Hunter, Days of Heaven, and Midnight Express. I mean, those are all, you know, those are all having some dark themes to them, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, maybe subconsciously Springsteen in writing this material was touchstoning with some of what was going on in the zeitgeist uh, about, you know, like you said, post-Vietnam. But I, I think it's also very personal. And, you you know, you talked about the working class blue-collar yeah. guy. You know, I'm think, I don't think Bruce ever was a blue-collar guy other than the blue collar of honing his craft in bar bands for years before right. he got a recording contract yeah. and before he became popular. So, you know, he's a blue collar musician for sure. Right. And coming from right. those roots. But I mean, 
as far as the you know the lunch pail kind of worker factory worker like depicted in in the song factory uh on this sure. record that's his dad you know his dad worked in uh in a plastics factory cutting huge pieces of plastic so he still grew up in that world even though that yes. was never his career very much so very much so he's very familiar with it and and obviously his dad yeah, played that role exactly uh and getting back to you i think that this i mean this album speaks to if born to run is becoming a man this album is being a man and being a grown up right and and this is all of the the kind of trials and tribulations of real life and it's not this inspirational album as much as as much as Born to Run is, as much as it is just like, this is real life. This is the hardships. These are the sometimes uh, romantic and sometimes inspiring things, Definitely. but this is real. And I think for you, you talked about this was you, uh, your first time leaving home, really. Like your first time leaving your home, the, the neighborhood you grew up in. And so you connecting with this album, I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of themes in this album that you connect with, but I think that specifically of be leaving what's comfortable to you. And it's at the same time, trying to trying to remember what, what is you as you do start to change through, right. you know, 18 to 25 year old uh, and you too, you know, you're listening to new albums and like you were talking about in the dorm room and you're still trying to connect with who you are and trying to figure out what is at the root of you, just like he was trying to figure out the core of his family and community and trying to maintain that strip away all the noise. Yeah. And you know, you're at the age where it's, everything is noise. It seems like, and you're trying to like sift through that and figure out who am I? Yeah, and, you're being and, exposed to so much, and you're trying to sort of filter it in a way right. that's not that's that's best, right? Yep. That's yep. formative and helpful, but not dismissive because you have to consider everything, right? Right? You're being exposed to so much new stuff that you haven't been exposed to before that you have to make a conscious meditation on those things. I think that's how I live life, right? Yep. Yep. I'm not saying everybody does, but that's how I live life. I'm I am who I am. I mean, Springsteen calls this record a reckoning with the adult world. There you go. And and that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, and it was for me at that stage of my life. I'm 21, 22. I'm, I'm away from home for the first time. I'm experiencing life in a new way, finding that, you know, most of the choices are now mine, not my family's choices or my parents' choices for me. And so I'm reckoning with the adult world and how to become an adult, you know, Springsteen's eight years older than me, right? So he's he's ahead of me on that curve. He's towards the end of his 20s. I'm at the beginning of my 20s. But, you know, he says it's a meditation on on where we're going to stand and who we're going to stand with. And I think that's all about that formative process in college. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are the things that you wrestle with at that time. And by the time you kind of come through that experience of college in your 20s, you're, you're standing somewhere. Right. And you're standing with some people. And hopefully that's because you've made those choices to do that rather than just found yourself there. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we should get to the track list. A couple notes before we do. You want to go track by track through the album? Would that be okay? You, you bet. Any There's way, only 10. Any, any way you want to do it. You know, I did it with a 28 track album last month, so we can do it, <laughs> we can do it for 10. Uh, a couple notes before we get in. It, it was recorded at the, uh, the record plant in New York City, produced by Bruce, obviously, John Landau, and guitarist Stephen, Stephen Van Zandt. Uh, and the whole thing was recorded live, which I found fascinating because they, they were just getting to the point where you didn't have to do that, but they were, they wanted to have the energy of recording live, which means they were all recorded in the same room. Sometimes people in the sound booth, but all playing at the same time using the same take yeah. of everyone, which, which is distinct from what they did on born to run. Okay. Born to run was agonizing. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like it, this was at times too. <laughs> it was, 
you know, it was everybody playing the parts and then replaying the parts and then dissecting the parts and then playing right. parts of the parts of the parts right. over and over and over again. And there was not that sense of crafting that happened with darkness. I think they got to darkness and they're, and I think Bruce realized, you know, what I, what I want to capture is, is more of the energy of, of playing all together at once. And then we'll tweak things rather than assembling everything from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by parts you're talking, and they make fun of that in the documentary, part, 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 which I didn't get until some, sometime later, but they're talking about the solo, like, all right, Steven or, or Bruce, go do the solo again. Yes. And that's a, a 10 second clip. Go do it. Go do it again. Go do it again. For three days, they would do a 10 or 15 yeah, second or, clip. Or Clarence hit that, hit that sax solo. Hit that again. one note and or, we'll clip that tape or, in. Or Max, I didn't like those fills. Make that fill right, again. Right, right, or, right. Or whatever, right? Right. You know? And this Everybody. was the whole band do it again. We're just yeah. going to do it live and it's different every single time. Yeah. And I think you were saying, but I think before we started the box set they released in, I think 2010, they, they have like 70 different, or I don't know how many it is, but, but dozens of different takes, different versions of the songs. On dozens. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Which, it's amazing. Cause you know, you learn in that documentary that Springsteen is a notorious rewriter yeah. of the songs yeah. so that, Lyrical phrases change a word or two or a whole phrase within the construct of a song's lyrics uh, two or three times. So, you know, maybe you've got five iterations of the, the song that ends up being the one you record and the one everybody knows. But the box set includes some of those iterations. And it's really interesting to see the evolution of his craft uh, as a writer uh, through that process. And, and but at the same time, it you know, you got to feel for everybody involved in the project that's like what's he going to throw out today yeah yeah totally <laughs> well, we're not doing this song the one that we think is going to you know be a hit and could be a single and that turns out to be one on the next record right 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 right, right. but uh it wasn't part of the feel of this album so uh one last note before we get into the track list uh one of the songs that Bruce one of the 70 songs that Bruce written that he wrote for the album did it actually recorded a demo of uh, the song called "Because the Night." Uh, yes. Jimmy Iovine was also recording Patty Smith at the same time. I think also at the record plant, uh, and she didn't have a single for her album yet. She had all her songs recorded, didn't have one that popped yet, and so they were still kind of shopping around. She was still working on some stuff that she'd written, and Bruce made the decision that he wasn't going to use "Because the Night" for the album, and so Jimmy approached him. Jimmy at the time, by the way, now he's like the music producer. Right. Media mogul. He's an icon. Jimmy Iovine, right. And back then he was just a mixer engineer at the record plant. I love it. Yeah, that. actually, he had the he was an assistant engineer and, yeah. you know, jack of all trades in, in the studio, as you need to be when you're starting out. Until Born to Run, he got tapped to engineer that Oh, album. wow. So this was, and, yeah, okay. And sort of engineer and do some other things. And then for Darkness, he was the, the singular engineer. And that's how he met Dr. Dre. <laughs> Anyway, oh, but yeah, so uh, Patti Smith got the demo, loved it. It reminded her of her relationship with Fred Sonic Smith, former uh, guitarist of uh, MC5, and she, who she ended up later marrying and having a son, Jackson Smith, who ended up growing up and marrying, do you know who this is? No. Meg White. Get out. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> no, that's yeah, Meg White. So that's just a random connection that I just... One of those Wikipedia, you know, wells that you just kind of click, 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 click and go down the, the spider down the web is amazing. Exactly. All right. So the track list, uh, I think the first thing I noticed on almost every song 
again, this is another note before we get to the track list, sure. I guess. <laughs> was the reverb. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this is before I listened to the the uh the documentary and they talk about like the sound, right? We need the sound of live. The right. biggest note I said was was it makes it feel like a live concert because it's yeah. so much reverb and I feel like you're sitting in the middle of an amphitheater. Well, and it, and it might be, you know, subconsciously a, 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 a big factor in why I like this album more than any. Not that he didn't use reverb in other albums, don't sure. get me wrong. But but if they had that specifically in mind, you know, as as part of what they wanted the sound of this record to be, it's it's not surprising that I like it so much because he's so amazing live. We've talked about it already. And and anything that kind of echoes that for me, even though, you know, it's not a live album. There's not audience in it. No, no, no. Uh, it's not mixed like that. But or or maybe I should say it is mixed like that. Right. Uh, it's not recorded like that. So and one note before we start the track by track also about the mix. You know, I think it came out in that promise documentary that. They finally got all the songs that they wanted. They knew what they what ones they wanted to use, the 10 tracks, and they were trying to mix it and they and they couldn't do it. They weren't happy with the mix at all. Mm-hmm. They just felt like it was flat and not at all living up to what was in Bruce's head and what he had communicated to everybody in the creative team about what they were trying to do. And so they asked Chuck Plotkin to come in, who wasn't a mixer. He's just a producer and an engineer. Right. And I think it was Landau that asked him to come in and he mixed one of the songs after sort of listening to Bruce tell him what he wanted. And they were like, oh, my gosh, this is it. I love that. And so really, you got to give Chuck a lot of props about how this album ended up sounding, because even though they had all the tracks there, they didn't have the mix right until he came along and he gave it, you know, that special touch that he talks about. You, you know, he mixed it in a way that the the vocals were barely in front of the music, and that and then sometimes you would you might have to strain to understand what was being sung. Yeah, you had to really want it. Yeah, right. And that's kind of a live situation sometimes. True. True. Right. So, mad props to Chuck Plotkin. All right, track one, Badlands. So this, to me, I mean, it has those big Bruce, like, chords on the guitar, right? Just big old strums, classic, like, mumbling voice, and the Max Weinberg driving drums, which is, it's probably half the songs on this album I could say that about, right? Big guitars, mumbling voice, or, like, gravelly voice, and driving drums. Yes. And the catchy piano. It's got the big, light, like, poppy, hopping around piano going off. I mean, this, this is a powerful way to start a song, and I'm wondering if he's connecting this to born to run because it definitely almost seems like that poppy uh almost like a hyphen into this album because the rest of the album is not happy and poppy like badlands right or at least um the sound of it yeah i'm, I'm not sure i'd i'd go as far as saying it's it's as it's poppy and that's uh, the piano specifically but let's also keep in mind that springsteen did this also on born to run but i think it had greater effect on this album the way he sequenced the songs Oh, sure. And, and, and remember, we're talking about vinyl, right? Yep. Yeah. So there are two sides, and right. you have to flip the record over. Right. So there are four, there are two beginnings and two ends, right? Right. Right. There's the first song on each side and the last song on each side. And he 
he sort of had a four corners attitude. That's what I've heard it's been referred to as. Where the first song on each side, Badlands and The Promised Land, they're both kind of rallying cries to overcome circumstances. So in a sense, they're upbeat in that way. And maybe that sounds poppy, right? Sure, sure. Uh, that that sounds like a powerful, a hopeful energy. Yes, that's maybe a better way to describe right? it poppy, yeah. Where, whereas the the songs that end each side, Racing in the Street on side one and Darkness on the Edge of Town, the title album title song on side two yeah they're 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 dirges they're right. they're sad dirges of discouragement in the attempt to over or, or, or maintain hope right right so they leave you kind of thinking right it's like going to a movie and it doesn't have the happy ending maybe even if you weren't expecting it but you're sure walking away thinking a lot about it right yeah, yeah and anyways the four corners that's that's something he was doing. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's a cool idea. It's definitely an art form that doesn't really exist anymore. <laughs> True. It's definitely something because to take the into consideration, changed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're not flipping over records anymore. But yeah, this song includes a, a guitar solo and a saxophone solo. Right. Which is definitely <laughs> things that I miss in doing the show. I've realized we don't really have guitar solos anymore. Even the greatest uh, or the true. biggest rock band in the world right now, which is probably the Foo Fighters, modern rock band. Yeah. Pretty rare to have a guitar solo. I, I think people might switch the station or skip the track if if they hear guitar solos. Young kids these days. And not that I don't listen to a lot of music these days, because I do, but I don't get nearly as exposed to as much music these days as I was when I was younger. I think sure. that's just natural. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the process of everyone aging. You spend your time doing other things instead of listening to the radio all day, even though the radio's changed, quote unquote radio does it even exist. But man, I mean, just think about, you know, the time that this album came out in my life. I'm in my mid twenties and it's a, it's in the late seventies, right? I mean, all the songs have a guitar solo. All the rock songs have a guitar solo. That's true. Have too long a guitar solo or, yeah. or two or three guitars. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Stairway uh, came out what five years before this? <laughs> so that was yeah, like eight and a right? half minutes of mostly guitar. Right, songs. and then you know, and then you got hair bands and and everybody, right? So, so the notion that songs these days don't have a guitar solo is is definitely sounds a little foreign to me. Uh, but yeah, uh, Badlands about a, a kid, or I guess a guy. He refers to it as as me and I. But I think throughout the the notes of these lyrics, and also again in the documentary, he talks about the narrator, right? Which I thought was interesting how he separates himself from the main character of a song, and it's it's almost like an author writing a novel. He's like, oh, this this guy's struggling with this. He's not saying I was struggling with this, right? And and that's you know I think the best artists are the ones that can do that, right? They create characters, sure, and sure. And, you know, some of the characters, maybe all of the characters have a bit, a certain percentage of who Bruce Springsteen really is mm -hmm. in them. Just like every character in film that you see has a percentage of the actor who's playing that character. Sure, sure. Um, That's fair. But it can be a very small percent or a huge percent, depending on what right. the character requires or what the artist is trying 
to do when he creates it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're right about the whole narrator for him. It's, it's, it's a tool he uses to great, great effect uh, throughout his writing and certainly in this song. Uh, and then track two, Adam Raised the Cane. I think this is this song stands out to me on the album. I, th- I think, because I'm still trying to figure it out. It has yeah. a very modern feel, right? It starts with this like fast-picking, distorted guitar with like feedback, big distortion. And then when it finally comes in, it has this slow, big, driving bass, bluesy-type feel with like this just syncopated drum beat behind it and kind of... Kind of walks up and down the scale, back and forth. And in the chorus, it just gets huge uh, with just hit uh, Bruce screaming, basically, Adam raised a cane yeah. in this big, gravelly voice. But this caught me immediately as kind of a, uh, a change. And once I listened to the whole album, this one stood out to me as far as just being maybe the biggest might be the, uh, you know, the, the word I'd use. I don't even know, but it, it definitely stands out to me. I think it I think it benefits a great deal from its sequencing. Okay. You know, it comes after Badlands and yeah. before something in the night. Something in the night is very quiet, comparatively Definitely. speaking, right? Stark we'll, difference. We can talk right, about that right. next. But but Adam raised a cane is ferocious. Yes, that's the perfect. And word he for sings it. ferociously. Definitely. Right? Especially when he gets to that that final verse. Mm-hmm. That, you know, when he says in the Bible Cain slew Abel, I mean you can barely understand what he's saying. And it's not important because he's, it's the way he's saying it, yes. right? It's its one of those rock vocals that I think for me just stands out as right up there with the great rock vocals over time. Totally. And the guitar and the sound of the guitar and the use of the guitar as a weapon matches it. Yeah. You were talking about Plotkin coming, Chuck Plotkin coming in to mix songs and he talks about how Bruce described this song to him when he was mixing, when Chuck was mixing this one as a movie showing a couple having a nice picnic and the camera suddenly panning over to a dead body. <laughs> and that this song being the dead body of the album. Like, that's fantastic. That, that's exactly... That is. The song stood out to me. I don't know if it was a dead body of the album, but it definitely stood out to me that way. And I think ferocious or whatever adjective we want to put to this, it definitely is an aggressive song. I think it's... Because of that, I think it's my favorite because it just is... I was so aggressive and stands out. That's the type of music I like. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely ferocious is a good word for it. Well, I, I have a suspicion about why you might like it and that this might be subconscious too, but it's definitely part of why it's such so impactful to me. Mm-hmm. It has, it's this Christian imagery. It's this sure. Christian foundation. And we both grew up, um, you know, in, in Christian households in that, yeah. in that kind of culture. And so, you know, he's speaking to a subject matter that we're somewhat familiar about, but he's looking at it in a side, a kind of sideways way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, true. That isn't the straight on way where we were used to looking at it. It was looking at it sideways and it made us look at it differently. Yeah. Right. And so that I think for me had a lot of power in it too. Yeah. Also, I mean, he, he talked about, and I'm not even sure I've, I've sort of really contemplated or re-listened to the song with this in mind, but uh, Springsteen, I think in that promise documentary says that ultimately this song is about what do you do to honor your parents? And wow, that's, that's a lens I hadn't even thought about yeah. looking at it in. Right. And especially that lens 
means so much to me in all of what's going on in my life right now because my parents are aged. They're in their 90s now. And, you know, I'm very intimately involved in them navigating this time of their life. And so I very much feel like a lot of people of my age and generation who are dealing with parents like that of the parental role, right? Of acting like a parent and the choices I have to make thinking that way, which gives me a whole different kind of perspective on this song than I would have had when I first heard it when I was 22 years old, which is a great thing about art, right? You can revisit music, movies, books, almost any art later in your life and see it in a whole different kind of way. Yeah. And and that's a measure of the art's quality, I guess yeah. you would say, yeah, yeah. That, that it can hold up across the spectrum of time mm-hmm. uh, and have different meaning that is still powerful uh, and significant to to the audience. So, so yeah, I love this song and, and this is the song that, you know, there's a couple on it, but definitely if, you know, this is the song that you turn it up to 10 Yep. when it comes on. The song, I think the, uh, the chorus specifically reminded me of a song from 1955, I believe from the fifties, mm. uh, which is down in Mexico for, uh, by the coasters, mm-hmm. which I'll play a clip of it right here. But it, I mean, the coasters are an R and B rock and roll band. From Very familiar 50s and them. 60s. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But it's the beat, but also something in the vocals. I don't know if it's the gravelly voice. Something in there. I'll have to line up exactly like the two five-second clips that sound so similar. But I listened to those two songs a couple times back and forth. And very, very similar sound. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, catch by you, I think. because, and, and less so on this album than perhaps most other Springsteen albums that have what we would... And what we've already talked about being more traditional pop tunes. Right. You know, that's Steve Van Zandt's influence a lot because he's the guy, he's into the three-minute pop song. And you, you can listen to his own albums and you can listen to his work as a producer on, on other albums. There's an there's a artist I've got to mention to our, to our audience who they might not be aware of because he, he never really got the kind of popularity that Van Zandt or certainly Springsteen got, but was you know, a guy running with those guys in Asbury Park, uh, a guy named John Lyon, Johnny, Southside Johnny. Okay. And his band was Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Uh, the first album they created, I think, was in 76, and Steve Van Zandt produced. And I think on their first album, there was a Springsteen song, and he also did a co-vocal on it or something like that, or maybe played guitar. And then in their second album, there were a couple of these other songs, like that Patti Smith song that... You said, I mean, uh, because the night was it, uh, Patty LaBelle or, or the Pointer Sisters or somebody later on did a Springsteen song called the fever and Southside Johnny and the Jukes covered it, I think on their second album or maybe that first and it kills man. It just, and it's very, they have got a horn section. It's not just Clarence on, on sax. It's like four or five horns and, rock guitars and horns and very, very pop music kind of sounding. And so there's a natural thread. I got exposed to the Asbury Jukes because I I was a Springsteen fan. And as I looked into the history of, you know, where is Asbury and what was Springsteen's history before he recorded and what's all this going on? Oh, and there's this other band. And so I got turned on to it and turned it on to, you know, other friends of mine in the dorm. And so now we were a little crew that were into Southside Johnny. So. That's cool. Nice. Yeah. I love that. 
Of course, there's a guitar solo as well on Adam Raised the King. But yeah. uh, track three, uh, Something in the Night. It kind of brings it down. Really light intro. Got that kind of classic piano riff that kind of plays through almost the entire song. Yeah. Bells, chimes, light, like tinkling of pianos, the right hand of the piano. Uh, just a huge juxtaposition between this and the first two tracks. Yeah. And, and also, not not only sonically a juxtaposition, a, a change of pace, a change of tone, but really also lyrically yeah. in, in the way, in the story he's telling. And what I love so much about Springsteen's writing is it's so cinematic. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there was this whole life of people creating music videos for a while. And I, and I bet you could create a music video out of so much of his songs. Because they they tell visual stories, right? I mean, the way the, the way the song starts out, I'm riding down Kingsley, figuring I'll get a drink. Turn the radio up loud so I don't have to think. I mean, yeah, dude, yeah, I'm there. I'm sitting next to you in your car, right, right, right. When I'm hearing that, he's put me in a place and a time and a feeling that I totally understand, right? And then he comes into that uh, second part of the. The verse where he says, you're born with nothing and better off that way. Soon as you've got something, they send someone to try and take it away. Man, who can't relate to that? Yeah. You know? And yet he's saying it in such a quiet song, comparatively speaking to the the two we've just heard. Yeah, I think, I mean, like any well-written, I was going to say album, but this goes for books, poetry, film, art. I mean, good art is universally, it takes these universal truths, but makes them deeply personal. And does the other way around, right? It takes these deeply personal things that could only apply to me, right? but it states them in a way that everyone can relate to. Yeah, I don't know if this is uh, attributable to him, but the first time I ever heard the phrase, what's most personal is most universal, yeah, was Henry Nouwen. You know, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I live by that. You yeah, know? man. If you really want to connect with somebody, tell them something intimate about yourself. Yeah. And that'll resonate to almost anyone that listens to it. Yeah. And this is, this is, I think the first song out of three or four of the songs that has no real chorus. It has yeah. kind of a, a, ref, a melody refrain in certain right. parts, but no, but the lyrics don't repeat at all. So, right. Which again is part of its attraction to me as, as a structural song, you yeah. know, you know, we're so used to the pop song that's got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, verse, chorus. Right. It's a formula that works, and there's beautiful songs that come out of it that I love. Don't get me wrong. But this is different. And at this time, felt different, you know? Felt very Dylan-like, right? Oh, sure. Who just sure, yeah, I can wrote that. a story and put it to music. Exactly. Yeah, just a narrative in three or four minutes, yeah. Uh, and then we have another song that stood out to me. And I promise yes. this won't, I won't say that about every song, but you know, if Adam Raised the Cane stands out kind of musically to me personally, Candy's Room stands out to me lyrically. Yes. Uh, and it's one, I mean, it starts with this voiceover for the first 30, 40 seconds, has that quick hi-hat 16th notes going on, tick, 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 tick. And then it's just kind of piano and Springsteen almost seems like he's improving this like quick talking speech over the beginning. And it's a weird song also because it's, 
not quite a love song because Bruce doesn't really do love songs at this point. Right. But it's a song about a, a stripper, a, a prostitute. I don't know exactly what's going on in the song. Do you, do you have any more insight into the, the kind of the basis of the song? Well, I can only give you the insight that I have as to what I think, how it impacts me. Right. Sure. I don't know if this is his intent when he wrote it, okay. but for me as an, as an audience member. Yeah. I, I, I think she's, if not a prostitute, someone who has learned to live in a way to survive by leveraging what she can in order to come out ahead. And what she has to leverage is her looks, her body, her womanness, if you will, in, in the kind of way that it's talked about in this song. And yet it's interesting because, and, and, and we're talking about the character who's singing the song. Right, I have to separate that from Bruce too, right? You know, who is Candy to him, right? Right. Right. When I come knocking, she smiles pretty. She knows I want to be Candy's boy. Boy singular, not one of Candy's boys, like there are many, right? Yeah. But he wants to wade through the sea of other possibilities to be the only one with Candy. And then we go from that that sort of very interesting opening verse, interesting yeah. with the 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 hi-hat behind right. it like you said and really setting it up the song in a way that you're really the lyrics are front forward right yeah i mean that's what the song is about it's a hi-hat and lyrics and it's driving the whole time and, I mean, the and then it comes to that 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 chorus part right yes, yes. where it yeah, just yeah. explodes right right and for me it feels like the explosion of emotion that happens in romantic relationship yeah as he's telling us this story about what he wants to be and who candy in her life and who candy yeah. is and he can't contain the emotion and it comes out in that chorus. Yeah. And that's so powerful. True. It's definitely exciting. It definitely um, contains a lot of excitement within the song. It has that. It seems like it's almost going faster and faster, even though it's maintaining the same beat, it's getting bigger and bigger throughout the whole song. Big old guitar solo there. One of the few songs that doesn't end with just fading out either it has that kind of those two big hits yeah. at the end there. Um, and that and that sustained guitar note. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, which is just amazing. I mean, I love I love that chorus. We kiss, my heart's pumping to my brain, the blood rushes in my veins when I touch Candy's lips. We go driving, driving deep into the night. I go driving deep into the light in Candy's eyes. Dude. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, how much would you give to be able to write that well? I that's know. insanely I know. good. That's yeah. that's beautiful poetry. From which no man can keep candy safe We kiss My heart rushes in my brain And the blood rushes in my brain The fire rushes through the sky Alright, Racing in the Street So, this is kind of a nice, slow ballad That if I think you were giving me the name of the song and the lyrics I would think would be just like this heavy rocker It's about, right. you know, leaving your job And you're, you're getting in your car, you're racing at night this lady, this woman sees you. How she leaves her boyfriend for you because you beat her boyfriend in a in a car race. Which I love that idea. That's like someone. That's like me as a kid dreaming of like, oh, someone's gonna see me playing drums on stage and leave their bo- drummer boyfriend for me, <laughs> not because of who I am, but just because I'm so good at playing the drums or so good at whatever hobby I have. I love that like dreamlike idea. <laughs> Tonight. 
you know, for me, it it totally captures that notion of what he wanted to do with the four corners, right? It's oh, the song okay. that ends yeah. the side, yeah, and it's the dirge, and it's and it's the sadness of being in circumstances where it's difficult to to maintain hope or or even keep that in mind, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, it starts out with one of the most iconic rock and roll images right ever. It's yeah. cars, fast cars. Right. That's rock and roll. Right. Right? Fast cars. They're they're integral. It's like Beach Boys rock and roll, right? I mean, this is like 20, 30 years before. All across in even even in songs without cars, there's the notion of you're listening to the song in a car. Sure. And that means something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way that he paints this story, here's a gearhead, right? He's got this fast car, and here's what he does with his partner, Sonny. They run for the money. They got no strings attached. We shut them up, and then we shut them down, right? And then he takes the girl away from the guy who was in the Camaro that he beat, right? And think about what that means. She leaves the guy who's in the Camaro because he's lost to the narrator of the song right and joins him instead she has a level of expectations about what that is he has a level of expectations about what that is that's that's a relationship made in at the peak of success right and then what i read from the rest of the song is reality strikes and they live day to day and they learn who each other is and he comes in and she asks did you make it all right is less a disinterest in him than just a roteness right. about how was your day today? Okay. Right. Okay. And then I think the song sort of touches on for me, the reflectiveness that must be going on for her is like, is this all there is? Right. I, I expected more out of life when I left the guy in the Camaro to come with this guy. Right. You can't win every race. Is, is, is that all there is to life? Sure. And he sees that. Yeah. In her eyes. And I know he's probably thinking that too, because he's gotten to a point where he's got to have gone past the fact that it's just about what races are happening every night. And he sees the forlornness, the sorrow, the anguish, the wonder of a life not lived in her eyes. And it makes him reflect on him about whether he really is successful. That's beyond deep that any song should contain. I mean, my gosh, you know, and especially a song that's about cars. Right. Exactly. So that's brilliant. Yeah. And, and can be even taken in ways that I haven't described or oppositely or whatever, which is another great thing about the song. Yep. Right. It's not just my interpretation of it. Somebody can have a different one and that's fine, but that's how I resonate with it. And, and it leaves the first side for me going, Oh, wow, man. Like, I probably listened to it for the first time. I can't say I have a specific memory of it, but I can imagine myself, you know, the the, the needle lifts off the first side, and I just sit there. Yeah. Listen, you know, thinking, imagining, letting that imagination of the story that I'm still in my head float around before I get up to turn over the record and listen to the next song, right? I mean, that's powerful. It's 6 minutes, 57 seconds. So, I mean, it's purposefully building this background noise if nothing else if you're not intentionally listening to it and so when that song ends that's seven minutes of one sound that stops 
Yes. So it intentionally catches your ear, right? For just a logistical album building perspective, the four corner idea you're talking about of, yes. of you noticing that song ends because it's been going on twice as long as most other songs. You get up and flip it over and keep it going. I, just, I love that idea. Yeah. yeah it's, it's something I did not think about while listening to the album. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, and then this the song also has uh, this reference to uh, the chorus. Part of the chorus is, we're calling out around the world, we're going racing in the street, which is a reference to Martha and the Vandellas. Exactly. Calling out around the world, we're dancing in the street, which I, again, I found that online. I didn't think of that myself, but I love that. I love little things like that. We're we're saying that we are bigger than this album. I am bigger than my band. I am bigger than this. You know, We are a, a culmination of all of the music that came before us. I love that. Yeah, and as a writer, referencing other works is, you know, yeah. is a thing that's that's part of the artistry of writing, yeah. right? And yet, how does he reference it here, right? Uh, that that song by Martha and the Vandellas was joyous. Right. It was a celebration, right? right? And he uses this phrase here not in a joyous, celebratory way, in a reflective, you know, cautionary way. It's like, yeah. you know, we're calling out around the world, we're going racing in the streets, I think that's still going to make me happy. Yeah. I'm not sure. Right. So there's a lot of self-reflection in the way that it uses this here. Yeah. And that's, that's another fine piece of art, right? When you can take something that's said in one art form, a certain kind of way to mean a certain kind of thing and give you a certain kind of emotion and use it in another art form in an opposite kind of way. Right. Uh, and then we get to the third corner, the promised land. Corner three. Which is, and I mean, now that I think about it in the Four Corner uh, context, very similar, echoing a lot of the same uh, lyrically and also just audibly the sounds of Badlands. A lot yes. of the same themes. I mean, it's it's working for his dad in an auto mechanic shop uh, and kind of tired of the, the mundane, boring life that he's living and wishes and he's going to start working for something better for him and his family. And he's going to make it happen, right? It's this inspirational thing. Right. A lot like Badlands. Yeah, with, you know... A lot of hope and yeah. a lot of promise. And yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to grab life with the two hands here and, and really go for it. Yeah and, yeah. and without any of that yet getting to, I mean, there's a, there's a foreshadowing of, Hey, maybe dark times are ahead. You know, he says at some point there's a dark cloud rising from the desert floor. I pack my bags and I'm heading straight into the storm. So there's a recognition that there might be dark times ahead, but he's still in a very hopeful way. Right. He says, he goes on to say, going to be a twister to blow everything down that ain't got the faith to stand its ground. Blown away the dreams that tear you apart, blow away the dreams that break your heart, blow away the lies that leave you nothing but lost and broken hearted. But then he gets back to the chorus, right? Right. And part of what I like in a lot of Springsteen's writing is, you know, he was a Catholic, so there's a lot of Christian imagery. There's mm -hmm. a lot of wrestling with those notions, right? Of There's often uh, mentionings of faith or lack of faith or losing faith or regaining faith. And he mentions it here. So uh, that adds complexity to it. It's more than just this kid, you know, just doing the normal things. One of these days he's going to, you know, overcome and he's got the energy and the, and to do it, but he wants to live out of faith, right? Yeah. A faith in himself, a faith in the future, a faith that life can, a faith in his dreams. Yep. 
And that I think the the song captures that great. I mean, it's called Promised Land for a reason. Not only the the biblical reference of a promised land, but the promise yeah. of of a life that measures up to the dreams that this character has. Yep. And by the way, triple solo. We got a guitar solo, then a sax solo, then a harmonica solo. Oh yeah. He breaks out the harp. Very I nice. miss rock and roll, Jorge. <laughs> this, these things don't happen anymore. Well, I mean, let's just stop for a moment and let me mention the fact that, you know, this is maybe the quintessential makeup for a rock and roll band. Mm. You know, as far as elements in a band, you've got, uh, you know, drums, bass, guitar. Then you've got a rhythm guitar, right? And in some cases, two rhythm guitars, depending on whether uh, Steve Van Zandt was with well, the band or not. We have two ears, Jorge. I need a guitar for each ear. Okay? <laughs> exactly. And you've got an organ player and a piano player. Sure. And a saxophone player Jeez. and background vocalists, right? Because Patty, his wife, was one of his vocalists before he married her, and he's always and she really illuminated the value of background vocals to him. And since then, his use of background vocals is exquisite. Right. That's a anytime I see a band with those elements in it, I'm thinking, oh, there's going to come some good music out of this band, and they're going to be good players yeah. because you have to be to play with each other that well, right? And all those guys on that band, all those people in in the E Street band were killer players. Yeah. Killer players. And and that's what allows you to have three different solos, right? Yeah. You don't have to choose between how can I let the sound of the piano influence the phrasing while not dissipate the sound of the organ influencing the phrasing, right? Or let the organ take a solo that's going to give you a different kind of feeling than a piano taking the solo, totally, right? Yeah. But not having, you know, not having a synth-based keyboard or that kind of a thing that, you know, was really popular in the 80s and 90s. Uh, certainly, he hadn't reached that yet, and I think in the future he used some synth drums, but you never associate Springsteen with a synth sound at all. No. You'll, you always associate the songs with, you know, rock and roll, basic rock and roll. Telecaster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, then we have Factory, right? This is the part of the, was it smoke rising? Cloud, the dust rising from the desert floor? <laughs> this is part of it, right? This is the, the refrain from this song is, it's, right. it's the work in the work and just the work in life. This is kind of yeah. the ultimate blue collar song that, that we've been talking about throughout the whole album. Man takes his lunch, walks out in the morning. I think this is the song that basically he wrote with his dad in mind. Oh, very you know, specifically, I think, yeah. I think this is the song about his dad's life. And oh, interesting. what Bruce must have thought about that life as a kid growing up in that household, watching his dad have that kind of life, and probably a level of dissatisfaction that his dad was having right. in his life. You know, the, the sort of details of Bruce's upbringing are, are well known. He talked about it in his autobiography. But I, I I bet as he wrote this, it was not only sort of I'm not saying he wrote it to sort of honor his dad. Maybe it turns out that way in the after the fact. But I think he wrote it more as a cautionary tale for himself that he doesn't want to grow up to be the guy in the factory. Yeah. He knew early on that he couldn't be that factory guy. 
mm-hmm. that he had to try a different path. I mean, that's why he became a musician. And it's a sad song to me. Every time I hear it, I reflect on on the sadness of living that kind of a life that might be necessary in order to support your family, totally, but can be soul-crushing as well. Right. Yeah, it's got to be a tough balance throughout all of the entire album and just throughout his entire discography of saying that he wants more for his life or, you know, the character or whatever saying that the character wants more for his life than just working in this, this kind of dead end job or, or job that is really hard work and, and is, you know, dangerous or whatever it might be about these blue collar jobs and wanting more than them. But at the same time, not isolating people who have those jobs that love Bruce, right? He speaks to the blue collar worker. Yeah, exactly. He's very much man of the people ideal. Uh, and so I, I think he balances it really well. He's not saying the people who do this are, are dumb and should all be musicians or yeah, all should switch all. their careers. Yeah. But he's like, this life is really hard. Yeah, And exactly. it's really difficult to get ahead in this life, and you're not going to make much money. And so it's okay to want more, yeah. but also still take pride in your work. Oh, yeah. And and that's a refrain that he maintains, like you said, throughout his disc- discography. You know, There's a reason working class people appreciate bruce yeah because as as one of them right yep exactly uh, yeah. so yeah and, and i think just because of kind of a certain type of sadness that i feel when i when i listen to the song it might be my least favorite song on the record but not because i don't want it to be there just because it because it elicits that kind of feeling from me yeah uh yeah and every time i come to this this song it's you know it, it's very sobering Yep. Uh, but good. And I know I know you were asking, uh, listener. So yes, it does have a solo, an organ <laughs> solo. Which yeah, any song with an organ solo with a slow beat is gonna be this kind of morose, sad, introspective kind of song. So that's, yeah. that's exactly what it yeah. is. Let's call it reflective. Reflective, thank you. That's probably a better word for it. Nice. You all over the adjectives today. Well done. <laughs> all right, track eight, Streets of Fire, which a lot like maybe it's just because I like Prog metal rock. That's where I, I just naturally lean. But you know, Adam Raised the Cane is one of the hardest songs. This is another one that's a yeah. has that gruff voice. It's got the big powerful. I mean, it starts slower, right? With the organ, right? Big reverb voice of Bruce coming in there. And then as soon as he says Streets of Fire on that line, I love that the whole band at one time comes in with this big hit of I ain't no liar, baby. I walk. Streets of Fire, just everyone comes yep. in. I love that, how unique that is yeah. compared to all the other songs, right? It's not this cookie cutter verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, and out. It's every song is different, and this one stands out to me right there for sure. It's so different. And I think the dynamic range of this one, like, like, yeah. uh, you know, kind of like other ones we've talked about, you know, really allows his vocal to change over the course of the song so that it starts off very sort of you're listening to this story that he's telling and, and you're feeling a level of emotion, but it's not peak emotion. And then Streets of Fire and then, you know, and from then on, it's like this anguished voice at, that at some point. In one of these choruses, blurts out something that I'm not even quite sure I can even know what the lyrics are, yeah. you know? And it's not about that. It's about, again, the, the gut feeling of the vocal that is just a cry of emotion. Yeah. So, so good. 
Yeah, I definitely had to look at the lyrics a couple times for this one because he's just very mumbly. Even when I looked at the lyrics, I'm like, I think he yeah. says I ain't no liar, baby, but I'm yeah. going to go with it. Well, it's not R.E.M.'s first record, Mumbly. Oh, my gosh. But it's Mumbly. <laughs> the The guitar solo on this one is yeah. lengthy. It's probably the longest solo on the whole thing. Yeah. And it is, the, the, the first half of it is melodic and beautiful and it reminds me almost of like a Slash type or like Pearl Jam type just like very distorted and heavy and thick. And then the end of it, it almost, it's not, he does, it definitely doesn't mess up, right? He's not missing strings right. or missing notes, but it's this messier type. There's some triplets in there and some offbeat syncopated hits in there that, uh, in with, with the guitar that they, they mimic the streets of fire, right? It's messy mm, yeah. and it's, it's rough. It's not this beautiful refined thing. Yeah. And knowing the album, like I do now, I obviously know that, every single hit of the string was extremely intentional, right? This is a, exactly a, not that he recorded just this part completely over over, arranged, but None completely arranged, isolated exactly. and like, Oh, let's see what we get this take. Right. You right. Know, no, oh, this is I, very I, deliberate. I miss that 16th. Let's do it over. Exactly. Everyone together now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, think about it when, when we look across the pantheon of uh, great guitarists and great guitar solos in rock, hardly ever think of Springsteen, right? I mean, he's not a guy that, that you're going to think is up there with the Eddie Van Halens and the Claptons. Jimmy and Page. Jimmy, you know, on and on. We go yeah. on and on. Sure, sure. But for me, the guitar solo in this song is almost perfect for the song. Yeah. It's definitely. perfect. Yep. It's, it's everything you would want the guitar solo to be, not more and not less. Yeah. It's perfect. And I love that he has a facility with his instrument that I think is underrated and can shine in ways like this without having to be, it's not a flashy solo. It's not about that. It reminds me of the kind of solos that uh, Steely Dan used to have in their songs. You know, Steely Dan, more of a jazz bass band uh, and definitely very charted as far as all the players and what they were playing. But they also knew exactly what they wanted out of each of those solos, right? right? And they created them to be integral into what the rest of the song was, not just to stand out as a solo. Uh, and that's what I like about this this Springsteen solo in this song. Yeah. Just kill it. Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's interesting how you, yeah, you bring up the idea of, of the intentionality of every single hit. And, and it's interesting seeing all the clips in The Promise of Bruce in the studio because it's his band, it's his name, it's his album, but he's only playing one of the instruments, two if you count vocals, right? And yeah. he is the lead guitarist, so he's doing the solos, I assume most or all of them. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's playing more of the the conductor or like or composer of the album than he is just the singer songwriter, right? right? He's not getting in there and being like, Oh, let's throw some strings on there. Let's right. throw some piano there. Like, yeah, he's not playing every part, but he's writing every part. And Clarence Clemens talks about him just like saying, Clarence, I want you to play this part. And he would sing the part of right. the sax that he wanted Clarence to play. Right. Which I'm sure wasn't the easiest thing, but if you're a genius like Clarence Clemens, you just repeat back to him with the saxophone, exactly what he said. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, surround yourself with amazing musicians and it's, it makes it a lot easier. I'm sure. 
Yeah, and and I think it, you know at this point in his career, especially after that three year hiatus between recording "Born to Run" and this album, mm-hmm. um, he had a very specific notion, vision in his head about what this thing ought to sound like. And I think a lot of the struggle of creating this album was in one, him still at the very sort of earlier stages in his career of trying to communicate what he wanted to his fellow artists that were on the album, E Street Band, and even the producer and even the engineer trying to get them to understand the sound that he was looking for. Yeah. So it was a communication thing. But also to, you know, it like you said, it's his singular vision. And, you know, there, there are some artists that they come into a recording project and they're heavily influenced by the producer. And the producer makes a lot of choices and really helps craft uh, the sound that's going to end up on the album. And the artist is, is more concerned about, hey, what I wrote or what I'm singing or what I'm playing rather than this overall, you pay attention to the overall producer. That's why I hired you. But that's not the relationship that Springsteen had with Landau on this record or with Iovine on this record or with the rest of the band on this record. He was happy to hear people's input to a point. But at some point, he'd say, that's enough. I hear what you're saying. It's this, you know, you've got point A, you've got point B, I've got point C. I'm going to listen to point A and B a little bit and see how it influences point C. But when it all comes down to it, it's my point of view. And here's what I want. And if we're not getting what I want... It's not happening. Yeah, I get a sense that Springsteen is more of an a-hole than he <laughs> than he lets on or than the band lets on because he is genuinely a nice guy, right? He yeah. talks about, we didn't talk about this, but Mike Appel, his original, the guy he had the lawsuit with, his original, yeah. I was going to say original owner. Yeah. But basically, right? His original producer, manager, well, agent, whatever. I, I think he'd be more of a traditional producer. Yes. Especially yes. in that day and age of the music right. industry, right? Right, right. Uh, he talks about how they made up and the making up was basically how... Mike came, he was invited to the studio and Bruce and him sat down and made up. Like it wasn't some like big thing that lasted years. It was during the recording of this album that they just got it. And now they hang out, not hang out all the time, but they see each other. They're within the industry. They're civil, right? They're civil, right? They get along and they both appreciate each other. They like each other as friends and glad they're not working together as, as uh, colleagues. Which is not how those stories go. That's true. Courtney Love and Dave Grohl don't get lunch. (laughs) Like they, you know, I mean, like th- these things, especially in this industry, not even industries, like a snack, maybe not Cheetos even, or not even <laughs> Cheetos. No, not even at all. Uh, they just write angry songs about each other and deny that they're about each other. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was really cool. And so I, I believe that Springsteen is a nice guy, but in the studio, just seeing him dictate to Max Weinberg, also a famously nice guy, the drummer, right? Stick, right. stick, right. Stick. And we'd hear him play a take, and every time Weinberg would hit the stick, I think when we hit it on the rim, and he could hear the stick hitting the metal, he would just say into Weinberg's headphones, stick, start over, and he had to do the whole take over. Stick, the whole take over. So brutal. I was like, dude, that but, you know, is brutal. You know, yeah, we. I guess we could call, you know, you could use the term asshole. I'm gonna not going to use that term. Perfectionist, maybe? Well, I think it's what happens with any artist especially any artist that has a very clear sense of what they're trying to create. Right. That that's fair. You know, most of those artists are willing to hear others opinions about that. Yeah. But at some point they're going to put their foot down. Sure. And say, that's it. And when you go through a really long, arduous uh, process of weeks or months or years, 
of trying to hone your craft to create a piece of work. You know, you build relationships with these people that you're, are your colleagues that you're working on them. And sometimes, you know, just people, you just get tired of people and, and you get tired of what they're saying and their point of view and you're, and you just have to remind them maybe sometimes tactfully, maybe sometimes not. Right. That, right. Stick. That, yeah. Stick. <laughs> sorry. It's not working for me. Yep. yep. And, and I'm sorry, I can't it's communicate exactly what I'm trying to get you to do. Yeah. But I'm still learning as an artist. Maybe that's something that Springsteen isn't saying in his in his documentary, but I I can read into that, right? I that's I've experienced that, you know. There's a learning curve. He said that a couple times. I think almost everyone interviewed said that a few times of like we knew we wanted a sound, we and we knew what the sound was, but we didn't know how to speak that sound or how to describe it or how to find that sound. Right. And right. so we're all getting frustrated with ourselves and each other. And we're in the album or we're in the studio for months and months and months trying to find this sound. And we, it took, I don't know if it was Chuck coming in and mixing it. That helped. Obviously there's a lot of little things along the way, adding some reverb here and there, but it, they, they kind of had this humility around it. That wasn't like, finally everyone did what I wanted and we made the album. But Bruce was more like, we finally stumbled and tripped into yeah. finding this sound after making mistake and mistake and mistake. You and know, and, finally and made think it. about it. If it was, if it was, you know, Bruce and one other guy trying to figure that out, that's a different kind of, of experience than Bruce and eight other people. True. Yeah. With eight other points of view, you know, six of those points of view being other musicians that are trying to make sure that, Hey, is, are you hearing my drums? Are you hearing my guitar? Are you right. hearing my saxophone? Whatever. Right. Yeah, the ego that's involved in that, and two of them, a producer and engineer, who are just one. The engineer is just trying to capture everything as effectively as possible, but has an opinion, and who ends up becoming, you know, a bona fide producer in his own right. So right. I'm sure the the you know the beginnings of that are happening during this album too. And John Landau, who comes from a, a life as a critic, and has become an intimate friend of Springsteen, and now his collaborator, and is trying to create an atmosphere where Springsteen can do his best work. Yep. Right. Yep. And part of that is being truth teller. Part of that is, you know, supporting him even when he thinks or doesn't understand him. And, and so all of that in a mix, I'm certain, you know, you get to a point and, and you sound like an asshole yep. or you can. Yep. It's, uh, it's fascinating learning how albums are made. I mean, every band is so different. You have bands like Metallica, which has like five documentaries about them. Right. And it's Lars's band. Yeah. James is the lead singer, songwriter, right. but in the studio, Lars dictates everything. Yeah. Kirk Hammett has no say. Right. The bassist has no say. Like, And James can argue with Lars sometimes, but at the end of the day, because Lars is the biggest a-hole, he wins. And <laughs> Foo Fighters, it's not the Dave Grohl band, but it functions like it. right? It's it's Dave's band. Everyone comes in. Dave says, oh, Taylor, hit the drums like this. Oh, play the guitar like this. Play, You know, like he, he does his thing, and they're still the Foo Fighters at the end of the day. And it was, I mean... It's Bruce Springsteen. It's yeah. not Bruce Springsteen's band or it's Bruce not Springsteen the and the band, band with Bruce Springsteen. Right, right. It's Bruce Springsteen first. Yeah, which is kind of nice in the sense that yeah, we know how this works. We as as the band or the producers, like Bruce, he's the go to guy. As long as he knows what he wants, then the ship it can still be steered. That's why band members leave bands and go do solo projects. Yeah, because they yeah, want exactly. their own control opportunity man. to you know have their vision be the one that predominate and uh, as it should be right yeah yeah all right we got two songs left nine kind of it's the fourth track on the second side the fourth track on the first side is all about love this one's all about sex prove it all night 
Pianos, big old drums. Max Weinberg just beating the hell out of the drums. And yeah, if there's one thing I've learned in doing this podcast is every album has at least one song, usually just one song that's like unapologetically, deliberately all about sex. And that's this song. Well, I'm going to take issue with you. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say sex is a big part of this song and, and sort of, you know, sexual dynamics sure. are part of the relationship that he's writing about in this song. But I think it's, it's more than that. I mean, it, you know, everybody's got a hunger, a hunger they can't resist. Maybe that's sex. There's so much that you want. You deserve much more than this, much more than sex. But if dreams came true, oh, wouldn't that be nice? What kind of dreams? Hmm. But this ain't no dream we're living through tonight. Girl, you want it, you take it, you pay the price. Yeah. Right? That's complex. Yeah. That's yeah. not just sex. That's more than that. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, proving himself to her, proving that he can give her this life that she dreams of, that, you know, he's supposed to play the role, the traditional role of the man who's the provider, and that'll make her dreams come true. And, you know, I know by the time he wrote this, he didn't believe that that was, you know, that that's, that's a fairy tale he's writing about. Right. Right. It's not a, an aspiration he has. Right, right. Right. So. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of sexualization or or, or sexual context in this song. But sure. I think it's way more than about sex. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, and it also probably has the fastest, most kind of technically proficient guitar solo and pretty, uh, I mean, distorted, heavy guitar solo towards the end. Right after, of course, a song about sex would be incomplete without a saxophone solo. Of course. Of course. <laughs> the sexiest of all the instruments. Basically, I mean, it's an anagram for saxophone. Nice. So, Very you. nice. Thank you. Anyway. The, the fact that you point out the guitar solo, I mean, this thing is one of the concert audience's favorite songs, right? Oh, I bet. Yeah. Because it rocks. Yeah. It And it rocks in a way that you can you can be celebratory about the song. Or if you really wanted, you could sit there and kind of think about what's really going on and be very reflective about it. But in concert with Springsteen and Clarence doing their thing, it, it rocks, man. All right. Darkness on the Edge of Town. So the title track. Uh, and yeah, this is a four and a half minute song. So again, echoing the first side too, where it's the longest, longest song on the side. Uh, and it's got this slow beginning that builds over those four and a half minutes, driving baseline throughout the whole song. Of course, the piano's there and just kind of soft vocals for the most part, right? He never gets to that really aggressive Bruce that we've seen throughout the album, but definitely one that makes... The, the the idea of it, right? And it makes you want to flip it over and start over. Yeah. And lyrically, and, and I think the way that he vocalizes the lyrics, very emotional, right? It, yeah. it may not reach the the peak ferociousness of Adam Raised a Cane or, or other things like that, but right, there is a right. dynamic range in the vocal. And I think it follows the notion of, of what the narrator's talking about. I mean, he starts the song, they're still racing out at the trestles, 
but that blood it never burned in her veins. Now I hear she's got a house up in Fairview and a style she's trying to maintain. Well, that's, that's an amazing amount of information in four little lines, right? right. That, Is that the same she from Racing in the Street? You think? Well, I mean, you could think about it that way. That's cool. Uh, you could think about it as a different person. That's cool, too. That's the beauty yeah, yeah, of interpretation yeah. of art, right? But, I mean, it, just what he shares with us, what what we learn in those four lines about their relationship is volumes, yeah. right? And he's vocalizing them in this kind of very measured way, this kind of very, you know, very in tune to the music that's happening at that moment. And then the next line, he breaks out, in a sort of defiant tone, right? Well, if she wants to see me, you can tell her that I'm easily found. Yeah. yeah. That's angry. Yep. And you can hear the anger in his voice, right? Yep. And and then you start to learn, well, man, what's going on with this girl that he's got a relationship with or had a relationship with and now that he's angry about and they don't see each other because, you know, she could find him, meaning that he's not, He's easily found, but she hasn't been finding him lately. Right. And then it goes on again. It's the four corner, right? Right. Right. So it's, it's the not happy tune, Mm -hmm. but I think very, very powerfully emotional in, in still within a dynamic range of its own. In a style she's trying to Uh, so that's all the tracks. A couple last questions. I mean, we're in hour three of this podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what what does this... Is this podcast longer than his concert? It might be. We're getting there. Uh, what do you have? Do you have a favorite or a song that you would say is the best song on the album? It's so hard for me to pick out one. I mean... Does it just change too much? It does. And I rate all these songs the top rating I can give each song. Sure. That's why the whole album is is a top rated album for me okay but i know that every time i hear adam raised a cane or candy's room i just stop and if this album was a film and i was channel surfing and came across it i would stop and watch the rest of the film right right so they don't play songs like that on the radio and i don't listen to radio that much anymore but and i'm mostly you know shuffling my collection on itunes or whatever Right. Uh, I don't do Spotify or Pandora or any of that stuff. So, but if if they were playing this album and I came across it mid album, I'd stop and I'd listen to the rest sure. of the album. It captures me, and I think that's more than anything because of the power of the writing, uh, the depth and the maturity of the writing, and the opportunity for me at every point that I listen to it is another point in my life, mm-hmm. and I can bring a different perspective to it that I couldn't because more water has been under the bridge since the last time I saw it sure. or, or listened to it. Yeah. And, and that's powerful. And by the way, you know, darkness on the edge of town as the last track on this record, who puts the name, the track that's yeah. named after the album or yeah. that the album's named after as the last track that takes some guts, man. Again, that's probably that's breaking from that Mike Appel old school music factory, right? Where the first song is the single, the first song is the title track. Right. He flips that completely. He's like, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to reject that. I'm going to make it my own thing." I love that. Yeah. Uh, and then if if anyone's listening to this that 
hasn't really done the deep dive into Springsteen yet. Do you have any other specific albums, not just other artists, but specific albums that you might want to throw out there to someone who kind of listened to this album as we were talking about, as we were listening to the podcast and really enjoyed it, wanted to kind of find out some more things that might be like it? Well, here's what I'll share with you. When you first approached me to do this podcast, I had to be thinking, well, what album would I choose? And, you know, I talked about the process I went through to choose this one. But I, for a long time, I was going to, my choice was going to be Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Oh, okay. Uh, which came out in 1973. So when I was still in high school. Right. And for me, you know, I, I grew up. Okay, so too much backstory, but let, let's suffice to say that I'm an immigrant from another country. Uh, me and my family left Cuba when I was only three, three and a half, and came to the United States. And I grew up speaking both Spanish and English. I don't have a distinct memory of knowing just one language, right? So I grew up bilingual. And the way that I learned English quickly was by listening to the radio and watching TV, right? So I was exposed to a lot of music on the radio before I understood that I was listening to music on the radio. It it was sounds and that I was learning language and all that stuff. So I grew up with a lot of those 60s records, right? I mean, the Beatles, probably my favorite band ever, Mm -hmm. uh, just because of all that. I'm a Beatles guy, not a Stones guy. Not that I don't like the Stones, but if I had to choose one, right? Sure. And then I heard a lot of Motown when it was on the radio. And I love all those uh, R&B and soul songs. And so I, I remember Stevie Wonder when he was little Stevie Wonder, and, you know, playing, you know, having hits like fingertips on the radio in the 60s. And then he matures into this guy, like is reflected in what happened with Springsteen on this record, on on Darkness. He matures into an artist that controls what he wants to do. On Inner Visions, he writes all the music. He plays all the instruments. That's crazy. He's got one or two people that guest on one or two things on a few songs here and there. But by and large, the bulk of the album is him doing everything. And not only are the songs have that catchy Motown influence, soul, R&B, funk, great sound influence, but they, they're about something lyrically, right? He's telling important stories, not just love stories, and he's got a, you know those kind of pop stories on on there. But he's talking about really powerful political stuff, right? That Springsteen doesn't shy away from either. Sure. So I, you know, I would recommend Intervisions or Songs in the Key of Life or any of those Stevie Wonder records for sure. Other songs, are there albums that I considered when I was thinking about which one to choose? You know, Elvis Costello's first two albums. Hit me like a ton of bricks. Okay. In 1977 and 78. Uh, you know, my aim is true. And this year's model, I, I was just like, wow, that's, you know, it was called new wave at the time. I don't know if that moniker still, still sticks for the genre, but it felt new to me. And, and another one, uh, X's first album, Los Angeles, that was killer. So let me leave it at that. I've given you more than, than a little. So yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I will try to edit this to less than a six hour episode. And, and, <laughs> you know, let's hope the audience forgives us. Uh, if you have to come out with it as a two parter, I'll understand. There you go. Maybe I'll do like a half hour version. And then in 20 years, I'll release the full thing. You already did a double album. Maybe you should do a triple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. 
All right, you can catch uh, Jorge on his personal site at jcspace.com uh, where he reviews uh, movie, TV, concerts you've done, any other stuff on there? Books. That's uh, books, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten to restaurants yet, but I'll get there. Yep. There's plenty of good food. And Yep, exactly. Uh, subscribe to the Overthink Podcast Network, and you can also find Jorge's podcast, Cinesoul, uh, where uh, the three billboards in Ebbing, what's the full title of that movie? <laughs> three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes, yes, that episode dropped last week, so check that out. Uh, anything else to plug? Anything else you want to mention? No, that's good. Well, uh, I do encourage everybody to check out the other podcasts on the overthinknetwork.com. Overthinkpod.com. Yeah, because there's a whole lot of different subject matter there, and uh, the network desires to dive deep into arts, media, and culture, and it does a great job of doing that across the spectrum. So I'm sure you'll find something you like to check out. Hope to do yeah, yeah. Check, check out the website, overthinkpod.com, for, for a full list of shows and Twitter, Instagram, and email and all that. It's on there. So thanks again for joining me, Jorge, and we will see you all next month. Yeah.